0: We want easy route. We want things to be easier and often find the easier to be better. We seek out the path of least resistance. We even sometimes deceive ourselves into believing that what is natural and easy is the right way. Relationships that are hard are rejected if they take work. Hence the rising divorce rate. Children are costly and a challenge to raise well, and so we don't have any, or at least we have very few. We think things should just come to us, and work for them seems to many to be an injustice, especially among the young and educated. And of course, the faith is treated similarly. Joel Osteen can pack a stadium with his false gospel of easy believism and cheap grace Which costs the follower nothing. All while promising that you will have your best life now. And Jesus had some hard things to say in his bread of life sermon. Hard enough to cause some to question their allegiance to him. Re-examining whether they will continue to follow him. Jesus' preaching has a way of eliciting one of two responses. Either skepticism and unbelief or trust belief and of course obedience one is wrong and the other is right and the right response is only possible of course by the spirit and both are clearly on display in these closing verses of chapter 6 so as we come this morning to to complete our study in this Uh, chapter 6, I'd ask if you are able to stand with me out of reverence for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ as we hear from chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. Let me remind you that these are the words of God. When many of His disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? The twelve, and yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our gracious and almighty God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks, Father, that your Spirit draws us to the life-giving words of Jesus Christ. And Father, as we come to consider the hard sayings of Jesus, knowing the costly nature of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. May you work that kind of faith and obedience deep into the heart of your people, so that they may respond to the difficult things that Jesus calls them to do. We pray this in his strong name, and amen. Amen. You may be seated. I wanted to give just a just a recap. Just a, we've been in chapter six for so many weeks. It can be difficult when we're focusing so minutely on little parts of it. We lose the forest for the trees. So we need to back up a little bit. What the chapter six began with was a miracle of feeding the five thousand with five loaves of barley bread and two fish. That was a sign. That demonstrated the power of God manifested through Jesus Christ. I tell my children, Jesus does God-like things because he is God. And that's what Jesus is manifesting the power of God through this sign. And that sign provoked a response from the people. Because it reminded them of another prophet who had come who gave them another sign. Manna in the wilderness. And so they were led to follow Jesus and he confronts them in the synagogue. Not because they want the one who the signs point to, but because they ate and their bellies were full. Right? We are often uh, uh, filled and our, our, the scope of our vision and even our imagination is on the things that we can see. right? And what we can touch and feel and are our needs being met. And Jesus is redirecting their attention to something much more deeper than just bread, than just the sign. He wants to show them the thing that the sign signifies. If you are content just to have bread and wine here at the supper, you will miss Christ. You will miss all of Him because He offers Himself as a sign, but the thing signified is is what we want. We want the life that Jesus offers to us. And so as He unfolds, In his, what I've been calling the bread of life sermon, he shows them over and over again. He confronts their arrogance and wanting to make him king. He confronts their unbelief and refusing to accept what the signs point to. That he is the bread of life standing right in front of him. And yet in the hardness of their hearts, they reject him. They don't believe in him. They don't trust him. And, and he, he he moves from the plain speech of saying, I'm the bread that has come down from heaven to speak metaphorically. And it becomes very confrontational because he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And the people are are incensed. They're angry. How, how can he offer us his flesh to eat? How can he, he, he give us his blood to drink? And Jesus is confirming them in their unbelief as he as at the same time building up belief in his people, right? We know that he is speaking metaphorically. He's not literally calling us to eat his flesh or drink his blood, but by faith, when we are united to Christ, we participate in the breaking of his body and death and the shedding of his blood, we are cleansed from our sins, right? But unbelief only sees what the eyes see, and only hears what what they what what the metaphor stands for, eating and drinking. They don't see what that points to beyond. And so they begin to get angry and they leave. And this extends not just to the crowd, the nameless, faceless crowd, but the disciples, that larger band of people who had been following Jesus for some time now. And now Jesus closes this spread of life sermon as they move away from the synagogue And now it's just that larger band of disciples. He begins to address unbelief even among them. It's not so much that the world doesn't believe in Jesus. We expect that. But how could unbelief be among the people of God? Even those who have committed to follow Jesus. How can unbelief be their response? How could they be so upset at these hard sayings of Jesus when they have committed to follow Him? And our text picks up the the thread of this discussion as Jesus unpacks these two responses. Like a surgeon, he goes in and he exposes the very roots and foundation of unbelief. And at the same time, we get a picture of what real belief looks like. In Peter's confession of faith, as he declares his allegiance to follow Christ, something that Jesus says could not have come from the flesh but is empowered by the Spirit. So it is these two contradictory responses to the hard sayings of Jesus, which we know are really just Jesus Himself. The hard sayings really embody what it looks like, what it costs to follow Jesus. So we'll first look at the wrong response to Jesus before unpacking how we should respond to Jesus. The question is, what is it precisely that the, the disciples find to be a hard saying? And By hard saying, uh, notice in verse 60, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But it's not hard in the sense that it's hard to understand or sometimes how I speak where you don't understand what I'm saying because I'm not being clear. That's not what is happening here. Jesus is clear in what he's saying. What they mean by hard saying is it's objectionable. And Jesus diagnoses that when He says, because He's omniscient, He knows even their thoughts. He says, do you take offense at this? Verse 61. They are offended. Jesus has said something that's objectionable to them. They don't like what He said because it doesn't fit within their neat, tidy framework that they have developed For what the Messiah would be and do. And so they find his sayings hard. It's somewhat puzzling how Jesus responds with a comparison from the lesser to the greater. Essentially he says if you're offended by this, what about this? If you're offended by me, because remember they're offended because he said I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. And they said how can that be? We know his parents. We know where he's from. How could he have come down from heaven? And he said, if you're offended at that, if you're offended that I came down from heaven, what about when I go back up? What about when you see me ascend into heaven? How then? And essentially he's saying, if you can't follow me now, what will it be like when I'm gone? If you can't follow Me in the easy things when I feed you with bread and you're full, when you see the miraculous power of God, if you can't follow Me then, how will you follow Me when I call you to die? When I die Myself and you all abandon Me. So we, we have to ask ourselves, how is the Son of Man descending offensive? And there's some debate over exactly what Jesus is contrasting. here, But I think it's, it's best to see the ascension of Christ as a, a part that stands in for the whole. You see in Christ's humiliation when he says he uh, descended from heaven as the bread of life. He's talking about the incarnation. He's talking about the humiliation of leaving his father's throne room. And all the glory of angels and the majesty of being in God's presence to dwell With sinful people in a sinful, fallen, and broken world. That's his estate of humiliation. And he descended all the way, not only from the heights of heaven, but all the way into the grave. All the way into death. And the second part of that is his exaltation. Rising up out of the grave. Walking as a witness to his disciples so that they may bear testimony to his life but then finally ascending to His Father where He sits at His right hand. And then, of course, this exaltation also includes His returning again in glory. Jesus is comparing these two states that He will be in. His incarnation, but also His resurrection and exaltation to the Father's right hand. The point that Jesus is making is that you are, if you are offended when I came, you're going to be much more offended when I go, when I leave. If you stumble over the incarnation and death, how will you ever take my resurrection? How will you ever believe that I have ascended up to the Father if you don't believe that I'm standing here today having come from the Father? Now, it's not... It, it, and the point is that if if the sign scandalizes you, Right? then what about the thing signified? If, the, if you're scandalized by his call to eat his flesh and drink his blood, then what about his call for you to die? To follow him by taking up your cross and dying? Not in any way repudiating his, his just preached sermon. Jesus zeroes in on the problem of unbelief, which is a reliance upon the flesh. He says in verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Now why, after just telling them that his flesh is the true life, does Jesus then say, it's not by the flesh. He's not undermining everything he just said, but rather he's establishing that To receive His flesh is not a matter of human ingenuity or rational thought or hard work, but it's the result of the Spirit at work in us. We will come back to this when we look at the right response to Jesus' sermon. But for now, I just want you to notice that again, Jesus, He peels back the curtain to see what lies behind unbelief. He says in verse 65, And this is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted him by the Father. Why is it that some of His disciples don't believe? The Father has not gifted them to the Son, as we talked about under under, uh, verse 36. However, the fact that the Spirit does not draw some does not give them an excuse for their unbelief. Everyone will be held accountable for their reception of the message of the gospel. The gospel is preached indiscriminately to all. Whether or not you receive it, you bear responsibility for that. There is no excuse for not responding to Jesus in faith. And all those who refuse will be held accountable for their unbelief. And this is what Jesus is getting at in verse 62. In many ways, the ascension of Jesus will be a vindication... That what he said was true. It will confirm. right? As he ascends up to the Father. Those who scoffed and said. There's no way that he came from the Father. Will be shown to be liars. And God will be proved to be true. Jesus will have vindicated himself. And those who persist in their unbelief. Will be condemned. Because they refused to accept his testimony as true. But it is the Spirit that gives life. and Jesus recounts this in a more intimate setting of his larger band of disciples. His, his earlier point concerning that divine election, he wants them to understand. Why is it that some don't accept what I hold to be so life-giving and true? That is because... His bread of life sermon will test the loyalty and devotion of many of his disciples, among which some are the devil. And keep in mind at this point, he's not addressing the crowds, but those who are in some deeper way, his disciples. And Just as uh, all Israel is not Israel, but only those who have their hearts also circumcised, so also not all disciples are true disciples. There will always be tares among the wheat, goats among the sheep, and even wolves in sheep's clothing. And some, Jesus said, are devils. Here the ESV follows the King James Version, which had no English word for demons. They used devils for demons all throughout the New Testament. And that's a bad translation. When really devil which means slanderer or false accuser in the New Testament, always refers to Satan and is to be seen as a proper name. It should be translated then, one of you is the devil, not a devil. There are not multiple devils. And just as uh, the latter example at Caesarea Philippi, after Peter's great confession in Matthew 18, Jesus rebukes Peter saying, get behind me, Satan. What he means is one of you is driven and motivated by Satan himself to betray me. As we may rightly say that all unbelief is satanic. For he has has been from the beginning telling lies about God, an an attempt to lead mankind away from a right, right relationship with him, which we may call faith. He has been enticing men not to have faith. In God. He has been lying. And as sin spread to all men. Through that first sin of unbelief. Now all are born that way. So that unbelief becomes. The de facto state of us all. We are all born in sin. We are all born. Responding to God in unbelief. What makes Jesus statement so radical. Is not the presence of unbelief. We are used to that by now. But the presence of unbelief Even among the disciples. Among those who have chosen to follow Him. They're not just the crowd who is standing back examining what's happening. They are those who have made a conscious effort to follow after Jesus. And it's even among His chosen few. How can that be? Why would Jesus continue to let Judas operate in that privileged place for the last year of His ministry? This is right before the Passover. Jesus will only celebrate one more Passover and that will be his death. He has one more year to conduct ministry. Why does he not purify his church? Obviously, as John makes clear, Jesus knew from the beginning who would betray him. But it surprises us that he does nothing about it. We learn from this a very important lesson. The church is a mixed multitude and will continue that way, until Jesus returns, and Jesus makes it abundantly clear elsewhere that it will remain that way, and that we ought not to do we ought not to try to tear up all the tares, because inadvertently we will root up the, the wheat as well. And so until Jesus returns to put things right, we should, this should make us very circumspect in two ways. First, we should be very cautious in our efforts to rid the church of the devil, especially in the guise of creating a pure church. Now, I'm not suggesting that there be no discipline, that sin go unchecked in a community. No, not at all. But rather, we need to have a sober estimate of our own ability to spot and deal with the devil correctly. For we are prone sometimes to discipline sheep and pass over goats sometimes even favoring wolves instead of feeding sheep. And sadly, we are prone to uproot wheat and cultivate tares, produce tares. We just do not always get things right. But Jesus did not seem to fuss too much over creating a pure... Remember, this is the archetype of the church, his little band of disciples... They are going to be the very foundation on which the church is built. And one of them is a devil. We fuss too much over creating pure churches. And that's how cults begin. And while Paul tells us that factions must exist in order for the truth to become evident, we can safely say that schism is satanic. And we Presbyterians are greatly guilty of this. So are all Protestants. When we have 45,000 denominations, you can be sure that Satan is at work in the church to divide us. Though Jesus' penetrating remarks concerning unbelief, we learn something of the wrong response to his hard sayings. We learn something of the wrong response to Jesus himself, which has less to do with the hard things that he says and more to do with who he is And what he came to do. The wrong response is unbelief. And it arises largely because even disciples are scandalized by Jesus. If the flesh of Christ offends you. Both that God took on flesh. But even more that his flesh was flayed on the cross. Where he hung humiliated as crowds mocked and scorned him. Do you remember what they said to him while he hung there on the cross? He saved others. He cannot save Himself. He's the King of Israel. Let Him come down from the cross and we will believe in Him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver Him if He desires Him. For He said, I am the Son of God. They mocked Him and they derided Him. Because how could God come and take on flesh? And how could God die for His people? Does this Does the cross scandalize you? Are you offended by Christ and His sayings? The warning is not just for the nameless, faceless crowd, but it extends to you, His disciples. Those He was most intimate with would betray Him, and then on that dark day, all turn away and depart from Him. All but John. Will you? When Christ calls you to do hard things, to take up your own cross and endure the scandal of public shame and humiliation because of your identification with Jesus Christ, possibly even to the point of death, will you then turn away? Or maybe the hard thing is just loving your spouse. Maybe the hard thing is just being faithful on your mundane, ordinary job. Just being honest. In a world filled with lies. Just being faithful to your wife. All the way until old age. Until the Lord takes you. Maybe the hard thing is just standing firm in the face of opposition. And saying Jesus is Lord. Maybe the hard thing is claiming a boy really is a boy. And not some social construct. Maybe you might have to stand up to your own children bullying you to conform. The truth is, as GK Chesterton quipped, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, it has been found difficult and left untried. Christ is scandalous, and his call to follow him is equally scandalous particularly to a world veiled in the diabolical garb of unbelief. And while Jesus' bread of life sermon may have ticked off the crowd and caused a lot of Jesus' own disciples to walk away from him, it only proves that Jesus can work with a lot less than we think. For God still has 11 disciples who less than 15 months later, when the Spirit is poured out on Pentecost, will turn the world upside down. And it's this spirit wrought confession of Peter that we turn to, for example, of how to respond rightly to Jesus. How do we follow Jesus in the hard things? How do we accept the hard things that Jesus teaches about himself? Does the omniscient Jesus really not know if the twelve will go away too? Notice in in verse... uh, In verse 67, Jesus said to the 12, Do you want to go away as well? No, of course not. I mean, Jesus says this for the sake of the 12. He he doesn't need them to answer that question. He already knows. He's saying that for our sake and for their sake. Because it's the question that we need to ask ourselves. He knows the end of the story, even as we do. We know what the disciples are going to do. We know the history that their lives initiated, but they don't. They don't yet know if they will continue with Jesus. Jesus asks that question to them, and I think that I can safely say He's asking the same question of you today. Do you want to go away as well? Jesus after every hard thing, after every hard saying that Jesus utters, every offensive, scandalous word concerning the cross of Christ and the suffering that the Christian life affords, and the increasingly in this post-Christian world, after every fresh apostasy or popular deconstruction narrative of the faith, we hear Jesus ask this question again. Do you also want to go away. And you have to love Peter. He's the unelected spokesman for the group or, or else he's the one who just says whatever he's thinking at the moment. We all know people like that. But in his sometimes impetuous boldness, we see the outline of the right response. Notice in verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There are at least three parts to the right response of Jesus. First is a deepened and growing understanding of who Jesus is. Secondly, it's a recognition that there's no other place to go, i.e. that there are no other good answers to life's questions. And the third is And the result of both of those is that there is a stronger allegiance to follow Christ. First then, believing to know and knowing to believe. Faith grows in proportion to the object of our faith growing. You can describe the growth of faith as a a helix coil. We're constantly spinning around, hopefully moving upwards from faith from believing to knowing. From knowing more and believing more. From knowing more and believing more. up Further up and further in, as C.S. Lewis said. And notice that Peter's confession includes a perfected believing. We have believed in you. And have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Often in John, these two are nearly synonymous. But I, I think it is better to see them as mutually reinforcing each other. Each building upon the other. Faith leads to understanding, and understanding leads to a deeper faith, which leads to a greater understanding, and on and on as we grow in our faith. Peter's confession comes, of course, situated in a story, which includes development and growth. At each successive movement along the storyline, the disciples' initial assessment, their faith, That Jesus is the Christ, the Lamb of God, and Savior of the world is tested. And it's found to be trustworthy. Leading, of course, to deeper faith. Knowledge is, of course, much deeper than knowing bare facts. In Scripture, knowledge is experiential. Meaning it is based on your experience. For instance, Scripture uses the term know to describe the intimate union of a husband and wife. That results in procreation. Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain. Genesis 4.1 To know that Jesus is the Holy One of God means to have a trustworthy, faith-affirming experience of Jesus as the Son of God and Savior of the world. And that expression, Holy One of God, it's, it's not common throughout the New Testament. In fact, it's only other occurrence are on the lips of demon-possessed men, in Mark 12:24 and Luke 4:34. As it concerns Jesus, it is a, a frank confession of his divine being and attributes, that who He is as a distinctly set apart, he's holy, and, the, and also being the divine gift from God. The Father sent the Son. To be the Savior of the world. He is the Holy One of God or from God, and He is distinctly set apart as holy. And along with the experiential aspects of their deepening and growing faith, there's a frank recognition that Jesus is the only answer to the deepest questions of life. Everyone has a worldview, most basically, a worldview coalesces around your answers to some very basic questions. Who am I? How did I get here? What's the problem? Where am I going? How do I get where I'm going? Answer, answers to those questions frame our worldview. Answers. Peter essentially says you have better answers to all the world's questions than anyone else. For in the words of Christ, who is himself the Word of God we find cogent answers that can be said to lead to eternal life. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what he is trying to drive home to them. I am the bread that you need to live by because I am the very word of God spoken by the Father and promise of new and eternal life. Jesus, just as Jesus is constantly asking us, do you want to go away as well? We must constantly be coming back to Peter's response. Where can we go? Where else would we ever go to find the kind of life that you offer us? For that initial commitment to follow Christ that the disciples all made, That initial commitment will often face doubts as our faith is tried. And often enough, we will look outside of Christ to find answers to our deepest question. What I mean is we all face the choice to find life in Christ or to seek it elsewhere. All of us have done this. We've all faced this, right? We struggled against the sin and it didn't seem like the Lord was overcoming it. So we looked for other ways. We look for other substitutes for Christ, functional saviors who will get us through life's suffering and challenges. Whatever it is, whether we're driven by our appetites or we look for it in relationships, we're always, we're always confronted with a choice whether Jesus will be our savior or we will substitute him with somebody else. The result of this confession of Peter's is a stronger commitment to follow Christ and enduring allegiance. You hear Peter's resolve to follow Jesus in his declaration that only Jesus has life because of who He is. And that resolve will be tested in a very foundational way when Christ is arrested and tried. Will Peter publicly identify with Jesus? Even if Peter is not offended at the Bread of Life sermon... There will come a time when something does offend him. And Peter will affirm three times that he did not even know Jesus. Then, as promised, Peter will have a crisis of faith that will have him far away in Galilee fishing and nowhere near the dying Jesus. And that moment was a test of allegiance. Would Peter be true to his confession? Or shrink back because of fear? Well, as Jesus taught and has proved every day in the life of every saint, the flesh is no help at all. Only the Spirit can give life. Only the Spirit can unite us in an unbreakable bond of ever-deepening faith. Only the Spirit can equip you to endure the hard things that Jesus calls you to. To take up your cross and to die daily. But Peter, confident as he was, that he would never deny Jesus. Even if it cost him his life, he needed to come to realize that his desire was good, but it was rooted in the flesh. Only the Spirit could give life and the ability to make his confession a lived reality. In fact, that would not be the last time that God would teach that lesson to Peter, as the early church wrestled over the Jew-Gentile relationship, the Apostle Paul had to issue a very stern rebuke to Peter. For out of fear of men, he had shrunk back from eating with the Gentiles. And in that way, he was, he was about to unravel the gospel, which had united Jew and Gentile in one new man, the body of Christ. Paul rebuked him to his face. Because he stood condemned. Peter, along with, but in the end, Peter, along with every one of the eleven disciples, except for John, gave the last full measure of their devotion as they willingly suffered in death for their faith. Peter himself was crucified upside down out of respect for the Lord, and so proved with his life that even death could not scandalize him and entice him to depart from him who has the words of eternal life. No doubt, right before his death, he was offered a way out. Just pay homage to Caesar! And Peter said, no. No. I will be faithful to my Lord because where else can I go to find the words of eternal life? And it's only that kind of Spirit-wrought faith that enabled him to endure being hung upside down on the cross. Because he loved Jesus and he knew that there was no other place for him to be. We have spent a a considerable amount of time in chapter 6 of John and the events surrounding this miraculous feeding of the 5,000. There was much marrow for us to draw out of this ripped chapter, but it comes down to one simple idea. The bread Jesus miraculously feeds them with and the manna God fed their fathers in the wilderness were signs. They were all signs pointing to Jesus. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear in point after point that He is the substance that those signs pointed to. He is the bread of life. We get so distracted looking for life in so many other places. But it cannot be found there. Only in Jesus is true life found. But it's not found because Jesus was a great moral example. But it's found in His offering, His flesh up, in His sacrificial death, in the shedding of His blood to cover over sin. And you who have trusted in Christ by faith have been united to Him in His death. And in His resurrection so that the life the Spirit applies to you is the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. The right response to Jesus of faith and obedience is predicated on the Holy Spirit. But still, you are held accountable if you reject Him in unbelief. Unbelief is a reality for some. But woe to those who turn away from He who is life. For you will search in vain And you will never find it anywhere else. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, thank You for the life that is found in Jesus Christ. May we be found in Him, always clinging to Him in a faith that is ever-growing and deepening as we learn more of who He is and we experience more of what He has done. May we grow in that faith. May our allegiance to Him be strong so that we can persevere and endure any difficulty that comes our way. Knowing that He who suffered for us will again come and take us where He is so that we will be with Him. Father, as we patiently endure, fill us with the hope of His return. Fill us with the the joy and the knowledge of knowing that our life is hid with Christ in God. For we come, Father, to this table in a moment to partake of a sensible sign. May we be reminded that the life is not in the sign, but in the thing signified in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for your Son. It's His name we pray. Amen.